Acts 1, 1 through 12. In the first book, O Theopolis, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them to not depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power from the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. When I was about 11, I learned a new word that really got me excited. Um, the word was pyromaniac. Pyromaniac means somebody who has a who feels compelled to start fires. Listen, I, I am no pyromaniac, but the longer I live in Oklahoma, the closer I get. In my backyard, I live right on the border of, of Rogers and Tulsa County, so you can burn in my backyard, which is thrilling for a city boy like me to now live in an area where you can have bonfires just feet from your back door. And earlier um, this fall, it was a cold fall day, and I had some uh, tree limbs and stuff to burn in my backyard. So I did what any good city boy would do. I took a five-gallon bucket of diesel, and I soaked that sucker. And then I thought, well, I'm just, I don't want to be embarrassed if this doesn't light. So then I went and got the regular gas. And then I put a little bit of regular gas on it. And I thought, well, this is good. I mean, I'm an Aggie. This is the Aggie bonfire stuff. You light the thing and it glows. And so I got, <laughs> I got, a, I got a match. You see where it's going? And I lit the thing and I dropped it in and whoosh, I almost lost every one of my eyebrows. It was, I, it smelled like, it was just, it was bad. And as this thing was blowing up in my backyard I looked and there were some guys building a house just behind our house and they dropped their tools and one of the guys started walking toward the fence and my neighbor next door his name is Bob Bob came over from where he was and they both just converged on my backyard to watch this fire you know as as we pray as I pray for this church and as I think about you there really are two kinds of people that are at Trinity. 
there are Christians who grew up in the church for many, many years who have done the church thing, who understand and believe and profess faith in Jesus Christ. And they come week after week after week to hear the gospel explained so they can better understand it and explain it to other people. And they want to know, what do I do now with my Christian life? And then there are people who don't yet understand the gospel, but they have friends, and so they come to Trinity. It's a young church, and they want to know what the gospel's about. And they want to understand and hear the claims of Christianity and consider for themselves whether or not they buy into this whole Jesus thing or not. So there are two kinds of people. And if only there was a case study in Scripture somewhere that showed us what to do now for those who are new to Christianity and those who have been Christians for a long time who just want to know how to explain it to other people. Thank goodness there is. And it's in a man named Theophilus. In the Bible, there were two letters written to a man named Theophilus. The Gospel of Luke, the third gospel, and the book of Acts. Now, we don't know much about this man, Theophilus. We know that in Luke chapter 1, he's called, oh, most the excellent Theophilus. Luke says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have happened, that have been accomplished for us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministered of the word, they've delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And then you look in the very beginning of the book of Acts, and it says, in the first book, that's the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach up until the day when he was taken up. What's interesting for Theophilus is that we don't know whether he was a Christian or not. Scholars just can speculate. But whether you are a Christian or you're just considering the claims of Christ, the book of Acts becomes for you like a bonfire. And fires have two reactions from people. They become like signals that draw you in. They gather people, and they also become a place of warmth for those people who are already there. They draw you in, and they also keep you warm. That's what fires do. Though just last night in our fireplace, my, my mother-in-law said, fires are so, am- the wonder of the flame. They mesmerize you. And that's what the book of Acts does. The book of Acts, written by Luke, is written to give you and me resources for the gospel, whether you're a Christian or you're not, whether you're considering the claims of Christ, or you've been a Christian for a long time and you just want to have resources to know how to share it with other people. The book of Acts gives us that. And it gives us that with three resources right off the bat. It shows us the distinctiveness of Christianity, and then it gives us two historical events that utterly transform the way that you understand the world. That's what I'm going to talk about for the next 20 minutes. The distinctiveness of Christianity and then two doctrines or two historical events that totally change the way you should understand the world. And Luke gives these to us as resources to empower us to consider the claims of the gospel ourselves and to then take these and have more confidence when explaining the gospel to other people. 
you heard me just read from Luke chapter 1. It said that I wrote these things to you, O excellent Theophilus, to show you what Jesus has accomplished and to give you certainty. That's kind of strange language, isn't it? Like you would think that Luke would write about a historical event, this man Jesus Christ who lived many, many years ago. And he would say, look, I want to show you all that Jesus taught. Like I want to show you what Jesus told you to do, what he commanded you to do. But that's not what Luke says. Luke says, I want to show you the things that Jesus accomplished for you. And then in Acts chapter 1, he says, I want to show you all that Jesus began to do. What do you mean he began to do? The implication Luke is making is that Jesus is still doing stuff right now. What's interesting about the way Luke starts off these two books is he doesn't say, I want to show you what Jesus taught. Buddha taught us a lot. Muhammad taught us a lot. Moses taught us a lot. But in Buddhism, in Islam, and in Judaism, you see something totally different than what you get in Christianity. Because with the gospel of Jesus Christ, you get a teacher who does not stay merely a teacher. He did something for us. And that is the distinction between Christianity and all other religions. That Jesus Christ came, and as we like to say around here, he lived the life that you could not live, and he died the death that you should have died. That he didn't just remain a mere teacher, although he was that, but he wasn't a very good teacher, if I can say it that way. Jesus was not a very good teacher. That was not his primary purpose in coming. Listen, those of you who've ever taken piano, you know this. Like, you don't go to a piano class for the first time, and the teacher looks at you and says, okay, now here's a man, his name is Mononoff, and I want you to play his music right now. Go. Or you don't go to the YMCA and work out with the trainer, and he puts off like 270 on the bench, and he raises it up, and he goes, all right, good luck. But Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount said, I don't tell you to love um, or to, to not uh, uh, commit adultery with your wife. I tell you, don't even think about a woman lustfully. You've committed adultery. Jesus said, I don't tell you to obey my command. I tell you to be perfect. It's like taking a Rachmaninoff piece and giving it to a Christian and saying, or giving it to a young pianist and saying, okay, I know you're only four, but you should do this. Or here's the bench press. I know you're only 16, but you know what? Grow some muscle. But that's exactly what happens to us in the gospel. And if you run into the commands of Scripture without recognizing first that they are pictures of what Jesus calls us to do in light of what he has done for us by being our sacrifice and being our great high priest, you will wear yourself out on the treadmill of moralism. You will find yourself like a hamster in a wheel running and running and running and running to get God to like you. Running and running and running to serve your impulse to always get other people's approval. And it will wear you out. Christianity is not Buddhism. It is not Islam. It is not just a command to find nirvana or to keep the five pillars. It is not Judaism. It is not to pray three times a day and to serve a God who 
if you do enough good deeds, will then reward you for those. It is about a God who loves you so much. He came for you. And he died for you. So that you might be able to say that, Jesus, your righteousness is enough for a sinner like me. Right off the bat, Luke says to Theophilus, to you and to me, oh, friends, Jesus began to do an amazing thing. He was a phenomenal teacher, yes, but he was a savior who accomplished for you what you could never accomplish for yourself, dead in your trespasses and sins as you are. And then he gives us two historical facts Two historical events right on the hills of telling us the distinction between Christianity and all other religions. And the first historical event he gives us, he says in verse 3, he says, To them, to the disciples, he presented himself alive. This is the definition of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is not Easter, obviously, but we're going to talk about the resurrection Luke says that, if you will, the fuel for the bonfire, the thing that you soak the logs in before it goes into a flame, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the thing that makes it glow when it catches fire. And have you ever considered the claims of the resurrection? I mean, I know some of you are here who, who aren't real sure. You're kind of looking at church like sociologically. You're not real sure if you buy into this whole thing. But have you ever considered the historical claims of the resurrection? Like, no matter how far away you are from the Lord, if you go and you ask any historian, they will tell you that a person in Jesus lived in the first century. They will also tell you that he died. It is not in only in Christian writings. It's also in secular writings that he was crucified by Pontius Pilate. That he died. That he was buried in the tomb of a man named Joseph of Arimathea. But what's interesting about the Bible is that it would be impossible for Paul to claim the resurrection like he does in that place in 1 Corinthians 15. You know that place in 1 Corinthians where Paul is talking, he's reflecting back, and he says, you know, there is, um, if I can find 1 Corinthians 15. He says that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time, most of whom are still alive. And if you've got questions, go find them. That's an impossible claim to make unless it really happened. Or think about the way that the resurrection actually happened. Who were the people to find the resurrection or to find the risen Christ first? If you're going to make a story up, you do not say that women found the the resurrected Jesus first. Their testimony wasn't even valid in a secular court at the time. It would make no sense for them to say that the women found Jesus first unless it really happened. It does not help his case and calls it into question unless that's exactly how it happened. So there is historical evidence that the resurrection did indeed happen. There were people who saw it. There was a testimony of women who does, that does not build a strong case for itself, but that is how it happened, and so that's the way that Paul records it happening. In, 
in uh, Greek thinking at the time, there was a worldview that is a, a way of viewing the world that worked like this. My body just kind of gets in the way of the real me. Like the real me is the soul me, the spiritual me, the immaterial me, but the, the, the not real me is this body. And one of these days, I'm going to be freed from the shackles of this physical world, and I will be able to enjoy life as it is intended to be enjoyed. And so the Greeks had this kind of awareness of their world that everything material was bad and that the spiritual was good. The Jews had a very different understanding of the world. They thought Everything would be resurrected. Everything would be made new. Everything sad would come untrue. And it would all happen at once. So you can imagine how confounding it was when a real material being who had really died shows back up in real life. Jesus is walking around. He's eating fish. He's having disciples touch him. It blew the Greeks' worldview completely out of the water. They had no category for it. And the Jews thought it was confounding and mysterious because they thought that the resurrection would all happen at one time. But here's one man who is resurrected, and only one man. And so you see in the resurrection of Jesus that not only do you have to deal with the historical evidence, but you also have to deal with the worldviews at the time. It was utterly unlike anything whether Greek or Jew would have expected. And so the implications for us now is that if you, friends, believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, like if you really believe that Jesus you know, rose from the dead, it changes the way you view the world completely. You cannot stay the same. Before Jesus died, you already had disciples that were backpedaling. Remember Peter? Peter denied Jesus three times because he wasn't real sure. Wasn't real sure. Jesus, look, bro, like you ain't, you ain't becoming the monarch I thought you'd be. You're not going to go and tell Caesar what's up. You've become arrested and you're going to die as a murderer? I mean, as a, uh, as a thief? Why? You're going to die as a heretic? You're going to die as somebody who thinks they're God? This is not what we expected. How much more so after Jesus dies? After Jesus dies, you don't hear a lot about it in Scripture, but you can only imagine the way the disciples ran for the hills. They thought all of this was, they didn't know what to think. And then you notice in the Gospels, when Jesus rises from the dead, immediately there's a worldview change for them. And it went on without debate or discussion. As soon as they saw the risen Jesus, their entire worldview changed. When I use the word worldview, I just mean the way that you understand the world. Everything about them changed. And they could never be the same again. And if you and I believe the resurrection is true, then the same ought to happen for us. Friends, if we're people who believe in the resurrection of Jesus, and we live in Owasso, Oklahoma today, it ought to change the way you spend your money. And it ought to totally change the way you view your neighbors. And it ought to change the way that you understand your own self-identity. 
Listen, it, it was a big blow to me this week when I found out that Johnny Football was going into the NFL because it's like the one source of pride I have about being a Texas A&M Aggie. Like he has done so much for our football program, right? And I realized this world in reading the Bleacher Report that, okay, Johnny's going to the NFL and like all of my Johnny Football righteousness just died. Like I so wanted the guy to stick around for one more year and terrorize Nick Saban, but he left. And so I... I had this kind of Johnny football righteousness. Like, I live vicariously through him. I was talking to a mom this week in counseling, and she was talking to me about their family. It was a really, it was a messy situation, very complicated, hard, a lot of layers. And at the end of the conversation, she looked at me, and with every ounce of honesty she could, she just summarized her life, and she said, I just want to be a good mother. I just want to be a good mom. And beneath it all, this woman who claimed to be a Christian, she had a salvation by being a good mother righteousness. She had a righteousness of mothering, which is a great thing. But when good things get in the way of the best thing, then they become idols. Or three-car garage righteousness. Or like I've had a struggle with as the storm just took out my trees that were on my property. Like I had tree righteousness and I had to repent. The way that you grow the Christian life is by recognizing that there are certain things that you hold dearer than you hold God. And repentance is entering into that awareness and repenting, Lord, I repent of my Johnny football righteousness, my keeping my email inbox empty righteousness, my whatever it may be, right? And the gospel becomes infinitely practical for you. The first historical reason that we have in the book of Acts is the resurrection. It is a resource for us to be completely changed. And in being changed by the gospel, we are then sent out in order to share that good news. Not only do we have the resurrection, not only do we have the distinction between Christianity and all other faiths given to us in resources in the book of Acts, but we also have the ascension of Jesus. Now listen, you can go to Hallmark all you want. I've tried. I can find Christmas cards about Jesus' birth, and I can find cards about the resurrection of Jesus on Easter. I'm still trying to rack the, sh- the, the shelves for a card that says, here is a celebration of the ascension of Jesus. You won't find it. But isn't it interesting that we are given it as a resource. And so if the resurrection for us is the fuel that is on the bonfire that should be the church, then the ascension is the striking of the match. It is the detonator that sets everything ablaze. And in the ascension of Jesus, you see some very, very interesting things. What do you think the ascension means? What does the ascension of Jesus Christ mean? How high did he get before they saw him disappear? Did he shoot up like a rocket? Or did he go slowly? Look, we don't know. 
In fact, for a first century Jew listening to this story, do you know what they would have associated with the ascension of Jesus? We tend to think it means he physically rose through the air. That's not how they would have actually associated this language. To be caught up in the clouds with God for a first century Jew would hearken back to Exodus 14 when they saw the pillar of cloud leading the people by day and a fire by night. It would hearken to 2 Chronicles 5 when they see the smoke filling the temple of the Lord. The cloud is a sign of God's presence. It is a sign of God's presence and manifestation among his people. And so when you think about the ascension of Christ, do not think of going, Jesus going to, moon, to the moon or going up to Mars. Think about Jesus going into the world of his Father, which I know that kind of sounds opaque, unclear. What does that really mean? It means that Jesus was leaving earth to be in the presence of his Father. That's what it means when it says that he was caught up in the clouds, that he was brought, whether he may have ascended, he may have. But the first century Jew would have thought about Jesus going into the Father's presence. There's a place in John 6 where Mary Magdalene holds on to Jesus. And Jesus says, do not hold me, for I will one day ascend to my Father. He's not saying, no, let go, you're holding me down. He's saying, listen, one of these days I will not physically be with you. I will be physically in my Father's presence. And one of the, the, the um, helpful ways for me to think about the ascension is to look at the kind of language that is used here toward the uh, disciples by the angels. He says, men of Galilee, in verse 14, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus which in Greek means this very same Jesus, this one, this Jesus, just like he is right now, was taken up from you into heaven and will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Theologians through the centuries have tried to describe or summarize this Jesus with three different terms. They, he's described as a prophet, a priest, and a king. And in the ascension, you see all three of those things playing out. Jesus is for us a prophet, which means that Jesus came proclaiming the word of God. He came telling us the truth about the world and about ourselves. He was the one who brought the heat. He brought the truth. He was a prophet for us. And he was a prophet of greater magnitude than John the Baptist, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. Even though he appears in the New Testament, he's actually an Old Testament prophet. Jesus was the true word of God come to us as our prophet, the one who brings to us the good news. In John 8, Jesus says, if you continue in my truth, the truth will set you free. Jesus is the great liberator of his people. The great prophet to come and bring the good news that you are not hopeless in this world, that there is freedom for the captives of sin. Uh, one, of the, one of the things in Ephesians that we looked at last year, we didn't harp on this, but I want to go back to Ephesians 4 just for a minute. There's a place in Ephesians 4 where, where Paul is talking to the people of Ephesus in, in Asia Minor, and he says, listen, 
it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, that all, you began to believe all that you heard of Jesus, all that, you, all that Jesus, you know, showed you. In Greek, it actually says you began to believe all the things you heard from Jesus. Like you actually heard him. You didn't hear about him, you heard him. And what's interesting about that is that Jesus wasn't in, a, in Asia Minor in the mid-first century. Jesus wasn't there, but yet Paul assumes that they heard him, that he was there. He was telling them the good news of the gospel. And you know what the implication for you and I? This ought to shock us. The implication is that when you hear my voice with all of the idiosyncrasies I have as a preacher, you actually are hearing the words of Christ as God's word is taught. And even though John the Baptist, who was an incredible preacher, thousands of times better and more articulate than I will ever be, even though John the Baptist came to preach God's word, Jesus tells you and me, you know who has a better ministry even than John the Baptist? You know who has a prophetic ministry? You. And me. And it's interesting, the disciples say to Jesus in verse 7, or verse 6, they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Lord, will you come and do great things? And notice that Jesus turns the table on them. He doesn't say, I I will do it at such and such a time. Jesus says in verse 8, the disciples say, will you? And Jesus in verse 8 says, no, you will. As if to say, look, I continue to do my ministry through you. Even though some of you may feel like you don't have much confidence to talk about the gospel with other people, you know what you do have? You've got the story of how Jesus opened up your heart to believe the gospel. And you can tell people what happened in your life. We tend to say, Jesus, when will you come and show us the next five ways to be a better Christian? When will you show up and show me four steps to be a better daddy? I need that really badly. But Jesus says, no, Blake, you will. And friends, if we're going to be the church in 2014 in Owasso, Jesus looks at us and says, friends, even the most unarticulate person in here, even the least in the kingdom of God, the least person in the kingdom has a greater prophetic ministry than John the Baptist. There, there, was, there was a time when, about 10 years ago, I was working at a church in Dallas, and my pastor, my senior pastor, asked me to take this guy to the airport at DFW. And so I did. He was an older, tall man, balding guy, and I talked to him about church planting. He said he was, church, he was planting in some far-off city. And I said, okay, great, great to meet you. What was your name again before, this is a true story, tell me your name again before I left the car? And he said, my name is Tim Keller. <laughs> I said, it's great to meet you, Reverend Keller. I had no idea that I was taking to the airport this tall, interesting, bald man for 40 minutes named Tim Keller, who I look back at now and say, that's probably one of the most articulate evangelists in the known Western world. Oh, the questions I would have loved to have asked him. And in studying this text this week, it's like the Lord said, you know what, Blake? There are people in this church that are better preachers than you are. And you'll never be Tim Keller. 
But you have a greater prophetic ministry than John the Baptist. It is not about how articulate you are. It's about how willing you are to be used by God to share your story with other people. And the resources that Jesus gives you is to show you how distinct you are as a Christian, to show you the resurrection, the fuel to the fire, and to show you the ascension, which is the detonator for it all. And there was only one word that these men had that we sat around and watched this bonfire. And it wasn't even in English because we had to articulate it in some other way. And we just sat there and looked at this thing and said, En fuego. This bonfire is big. And that's the call for us in the book of Acts. If you're going to be a church that's on fire, then we've got to be, just like Charles Spurgeon said, I'm so on fire with Christ when he was interviewed that when I preach, people just show up to watch me burn. And friends, some of you burn at work by doing the best work for your clients you can possibly do. And when the moment arises for you to be able to talk about the gospel and the reason for the hope you profess, you're not disqualified because you do shoddy work. You actually do great work, we pray. And you're able to tell them, listen to the claims of this God who loves me so much that he didn't just teach me how to be a better person. Oh, I've become holier, but it's only because of what he did for me. A broken sinner who needed to hear the gospel, and Jesus showed me that the only place I could come for true satisfaction was at the foot of the cross where he bled for me and he died for me. And then he rose again on the third day to confirm all of his Old Testament promises. And then he ascended to show that he was the prophet for me, coming to proclaim the good news to a captive and set me free. It also, in the ascension, shows us that Jesus not only is our prophet, but he's also our priest. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says that Jesus was a greater priest than any Old Testament sacrifice because he himself was our payment for sin. He is your priest And even now, at the Father's right hand, at the place of authority, you know, we don't have a monarch in America, so it's hard to imagine this, but at the right hand of the king was a place for authority. Jesus sits, and you know what he says? He says, Father, think about Lori. Lord, you know Matthew. You know Jason. And he intercedes for you with precision and with love. And he knows you. And he loves you right now. In Ephesians chapter 1, it talks about all that, all that he does for us. He comes to call us and to draw us in. He rules and he reigns over all creation. Jesus is not just our prophet. He's not just our priest. He's also our king. And the language of ascension is the language of ascending into the presence of God. Is going into the throne room where Jesus is now. He is the king who came to conquer all of his and our enemies so that we might be able to enjoy his rightful reign. Listen, when you live in England, you may not always see the queen. You may never see the queen, but you're in the realm of her reign. It's the same in the Christian life. We don't see Jesus physically, but he gives us means of grace through each other, through the sounds of our voices, singing the gospel to each other on Sunday morning. 
hearing it preached at church and in our community groups, and then coming to partake of the Lord's Supper in just a moment, to feel it tasted and touched. He's coming to you. He's reminding you that he's here. If we're going to be a church on fire, if you're going to be a church, if you're going to be a person who's really captivated by the gospel, then you have to be able to receive the news as Theophilus did, to see these resources, whether you're a Christian or you're still considering the claims of Christ, and to consider what has been given to us in Jesus. And this should humble you. It should humble you to the dust to know that you could not on your own, as good as you are, you can never earn God's merit. You can never earn God's approval. Jesus had to come and die for you. It also, it shouldn't just humble you, it should also lift you up. Because Jesus knows what you need. And you can walk with confidence in the midst of the uncertainty of your life right now. And he's with you. And he says, if you have all the approval of men, but you don't have my approval, you've got nothing, Jack. But if you've got my approval, no matter how many people throw sticks and stones at you, you've got what you need. And he brings us into a community of broken brothers and sisters called a church to remind us of that great truth. And the last thing, and then I'll close, is, is very simply this. It should make you more patient with each other. There are some crazy, crazy people out there who claim to be Christians, and they say some very hard and very unkind things. And it should make you be patient with people who may do crazy, stupid stuff. Because welcome to the club. <laughs> There's always another animal for the farm. We do stupid stuff together. And it should make us be able to be patient with our wives, with our husbands, with each other. Your life should be marked by humility, an incredible sense of confidence in Christ. And it should make you incredibly loving and patient toward other people. So we don't want to be pyromaniacs, setting things needlessly on fire. But the longer we are a church together, the closer to being a pyromaniac we need to become. Jesus Christ is the fuel. He is the detonator. He is the thing that causes people to come and to see what is this beautiful thing that attracts me to it and keeps me warm. It is the gospel of grace, friends, and it's enough for you and me. Amen? Let's pray together. Jesus, we pray that you'll take the sweet good news of the gospel and that you will drive it into our hearts and that you will help us to consider the claims of Christ. That you will show us that you will take all of our self-saving strategies and you will show us again how you are enough. But I pray that you'll lead us into repentance as we come to the table in just a moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.